You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. First Timothy chapter 5. Now what's fascinating about this chapter is that it continues on in Paul's letter to Timothy and it continues on in a very practical nature. Paul is here to speak to Timothy very basically about how to treat people in the church. And so you're going to see throughout this chapter how to treat this kind of person, this group of people, the other group of people. And of course, these are generalizations. We understand that, don't we? Everybody's an individual, but yet there, there are certain helps. There are guidelines that an older pastor can give to a younger pastor, very practical instruction and information on how to deal with individuals and groups in the church. So verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers. Now, Paul directed Timothy here that generally speaking, old men or older men are not to be rebuked. A young pastor like Timothy had to shepherd a lot of people who were older than him, and he had to do it faithfully. And he had to do it with giving proper respect to older men in the congregation. Now, it's assumed biblically, and I think it works out mostly this way in life, well, it's certainly not in every case, but, but people uh, get a little bit wiser when they get older. They certainly have life experience to draw from, and especially if they've grown on in old in the Lord, they have wisdom that should be paid attention to. And so Timothy says, recognize this. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Now, it is interesting to me that when Paul wrote Timothy and used this particular word for rebuke, this is a different word for rebuke used than just about every other place in the New Testament. It's not what we would call the normal word for rebuke. Matter of fact, this word is kind of harsh. This word has the idea of to strike at. It's basically talking about verbally assaulting somebody. And I kind of point this out because in other passages, Paul has very plainly told Timothy that he must rebuke. For example, in Titus chapter 2, and I know he's not speaking to Timothy here, but in Titus chapter 2 verse 15, he says, rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. So this idea of rebuking, of confronting people with their sin, this is part of what a pastor must do. A pastor's not called to be just the nice, easy guy to everybody, but there's times and places where the pastor must confront people with their sin. I know very few pastors, although I can think of a couple, but I know very few pastors who seem to enjoy that part of the job of pastoring. And I know probably even fewer people who enjoy being confronted with their sin. But it's a necessary part of what God calls people to do as pastors. So nobody should think for a moment, I, I, I couldn't imagine an a older man in a congregation who is approached about some sin and he's approached in a respectful way, yet, yet his sin is called attention to and some accountability is brought. I can't imagine him laying down this card and saying, hey, Paul said you shouldn't rebuke me. I'm an older man. No, what Paul's saying here is that you shouldn't be verbally assaulted. You shouldn't be struck at with the words, but if, if any confrontation is to be made, it should be done full of respect. 
a matter of fact, notice that, but exhort him as a father. Exhortation is encouragement, what needs to be done. It it has the idea of sort of being a coach or a trainer. It's helping the athlete to achieve their best. It's exhorting them along the way. That should be the mentality, much more to exhort than to rebuke. And then he says at the end of verse 1, younger men as brothers. Listen, treat those younger men as brothers, as partners and friends with the work of God. You don't need to give them the same deference that you might give to a respected older man in the congregation, but treat them as brothers. You know, brothers can have a little bit of give and take and get a little rough with one another, but they they all know it's in a very brotherly way. Now verse 2, older women as mothers... Younger as sisters with all purity. I like how Paul noted older women as mothers. Again, with the respect and honor due their age, of course. But it also puts me in mind of how a younger pastor, and look, I, I'm not here to give you my whole life story here this evening, but I, I entered into pastoral ministry, uh, boy, I'm almost embarrassed to say it. There's a whole story behind it. I'm not going to get in the whole explanation, but uh, I find myself, I don't know why I'm embarrassed. I entered in pastoral ministry when I was 19 years old. So I've dealt with a lot of women older than me in congregations. And, and one thing I see in this is that as Timothy was a young man, I think Paul's telling him, you, you're just going to have to accept a little bit of mothering on behalf of some of these godly old women in the congregation. That's just how it is. It's sweet. They love you. They care about you. you. You need to accept it and appreciate it from the older women in the church. And it's proper to give them honor as such. But the younger women, notice what he says there in verse 2, younger women as sisters with all purity. I think that's a very important principle. Not just for a young pastor like Timothy, but for anybody in the body of Christ, to every man in the body of Christ. Those younger women were to be treated as sisters. Timothy, like any godly man, was always to make certain that his conduct towards younger women was always pure and above reproach. Now this is something that's being called upon in the broader culture today. But it has to be called upon in the broader culture because th- th- there's no restrictions on it in the modern culture. But the Bible teaches us that there is no place for a man to treat a woman in, in a reprehensible way. No, instead they should be treated as sisters. A godly man is not fl- flirtatious. He's not provocative. He doesn't use double entendre, that is, witty words that can be taken in a flirtatious or a provocative way. No, a a, a godly man guards against that and doesn't do it. Well, this is exactly what Paul told Timothy to do, to treat these younger women as sisters. Now, when we come on to verse 3, we're talking about a whole different category. You had the older men and the younger men, You have the older women and the younger women. Now, he's going to deal with another category, those who are widows. You see that right there in verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows. And this helps us to understand in the context 
that Paul's not talking about widows just as another group within the church, but rather as sort of, I think, sort of an emblem of those who would have financial need in the church. In the days that the New Testament was written, there was no social assistance system from the government. And one especially vulnerable group were elderly widows. Usually they were without support, of course, from their husbands, because they were widows, or from grown children, if they were childless especially. They were without adequate means to support themselves. That's why he says, notice the phrase there in verse 3 carefully, honor widows who are really widows. Those who were really widows. Now you might say, well, what do you mean not really a widow? If her husband's dead, she's a widow. No, 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 that's not what Paul's talking about. He's using widows not just as a technical designation, as someone who has lost their husband, but widows as that class of people who had no support, none. Well, therefore, and I'm getting inside Paul's thought here, if Paul were to say, well, okay, here's this uh, widow. Um, Her husband has passed away, unfortunately, but she has grown children who can support her. Paul would say, well, she's a widow, but she's not really a widow. She's a widow in the technical sense, of course, but she's not destitute in the sense that that term would apply. And this leads us into something that really we have to think about carefully. And as I thought about what I'm going to say to you this evening, how I'm going to develop this, I think accurately from 1 Timothy chapter 5, I thought what I'm going to say tonight may offend some folks. I think this chapter gives us remarkable instruction on how the church should assist those who are in need. And I have heard it taught on very rarely in my years of Christian. I've taught on it myself very rarely. And I, I think the very plain truth that it brings out goes against much common thinking. Now, when he says, honor widows who are really widows, he doesn't mean have a special service where they're applauded. You take these women who are really needed in the church, really need, needy in the church, I should say, you bring them up on the platform, and everybody honors them like in an award ceremony. That's not the idea at all. The idea to honor there is to financially support them. That's what he means by honor. You are to financially support them, but I love the way they phrase it, in a way that is dignified and honorable. In other words, you're supporting them, but but in a way that honors them, not in a way that demeans them, not, not in a way that would humiliate them, but in a way that would give them appropriate honor. So think about this, not only in the case, because of course our modern world is quite different with the economy, social systems, all the rest of it. But there are still those who have need among us, are there not? Of course there are. So the principles, I think, we need to figure out how they apply today. And let's do that by starting now at verse 4. Because he's going to say, how do you know if they're really widows? And again, does everybody track with me? We're not talking about just whether or not their husband has passed away, but whether or not they are uh, suitable to be honored as widows financially there in the body of Christ. Here we go, verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone 
trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Now notice this. Verse 4 tells us by bringing up the phrase, if any widow has children. What it's just saying there is those who should be legitimately helped by the church should not have family who can assist them. If they do have family who can assist them, it's the duty and the responsibility of the family to do it. You might call this the family or the need test. Are they truly destitute? And if they have that family who should step up and take care of them, then the family should step up and take care of them. Now again, this is a a very plain point. Is there the family test or the need test? Does that apply? If they are really widows and have no family or have no other means of support or, or assistance, then he says, observe that. But notice this next in verse 5. He says, if they trust in God and continue in supplications and prayers night and day, those who should be legitimately helped by the church should serve the church in some way. And how should they serve? Well, with the widows, they should pray. They should be that prayer warriors and champions of the church. In this case, the widows were given the job of praying for the church. You could say this is the second test, the service test. Again, I I don't know exactly how to say this so plainly and, and straightforwardly, but the text tells us. This isn't just a handout. You're going to bring a widow onto the support of the church, someone who's truly needy. If you're going to help support them from the resource of the church, it was fair enough to ask, what are they doing for the church? Are they praying? Are they spiritually supporting? This doesn't have the feel of just a handout, of just a mercy gift in that sense, but it's saying, well, look, the, the research of the church should go to those who are supporting, serving the church some way. Expect diligent service. And then the third test, it's even a little more uncomfortable here. Verse 6, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And then verse 7, these things command that they may be blameless. Those who should be legitimately helped by the church should live godly lives. It is appropriate to say, you're not living a godly life. So you're not going to receive financial assistance from the church. That's the moral test. Now, it's a heavy thing to do this. I know this through my years of being a pastor. I could tell you a lot of stories. There's a lot of stories where you get a desperate call. And I mean, these go back years ago in situations. You get a desperate call from a guy. Pastor, can you help me? You know, I'm in desperate need. Uh, I've got this thing. Can you come and bring something by? And, 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 and there's one occasion I'm thinking of in particular where the guy gave me this call. And of course, the need was so dire. It was so desperate. He asked me if I could come. And boy, what a story he had. And I come and I, 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 I go to the hotel room where he's at. And uh, it wasn't a big pricey hotel, but it was a hotel room nonetheless. I go there and I see uh, just utter chaos and disarray in the room. Pizza boxes. uh, Just some very questionable program on the television set. 
And uh, these were the days before cell phones even. And so you see the phone book open there and it's open to the church page right there by the phone. And you could tell the guy's just been making the rounds through the churches and this was his scam. This was his thing. Blow into a community, get a hotel room, ring up all the churches, spin his story and try to milk as much money out of people as he could. Tell you other stories about many, many times uh, meeting somebody. Hey, uh, you're David Guzik, you're pastor of so and so church. I mean, uh, th- these are days that come from, I think, my 14 years at Calvary Chapel, Simi Valley, about an hour away from here. You know, hey, uh, Pastor, isn't it wonderful? I go to Calvary Chapel XYZ, you know, in uh, Northern California or something like that. Uh, my pastor said if I had a need, I could help you, you could help me out, you know. Can you? And so, uh, listen, oftentimes I would. You generally have this disposition, don't you, that if you're going to err, you want to err on the side of generosity. But, but I, would, I, would call, I would say, now listen, would you please do me a favor? When you get home, would you please have your pastor give me a call or send me, just to let me know that you got home okay? You want to know how many calls I got from pastors in all my years? <laughs> a big fat zero. Not a single one. Now look, I'm not saying that there's not people out there that have legitimate needs. Of course there are. Not every story is a scam or rip-off. No, I don't mean that by any means. But, but I do think that we need to readjust our thinking biblically and say if someone's in need, it's totally appropriate to apply a family or need test. It's totally appropriate to apply a service test. And it's totally appropriate to provide a, a moral test. That's exactly what Paul did with the distribution of the widows. Well, Paul, this person's in need. Paul says, look, is she serving the, the body of Christ? Is she serving? Is she one of these prayer warriors? No. Well, then Paul says, come back when she is. Well, I mean, is she living a, an appropriately, you know, moral life? Is she really, or is she out kind of carousing? Uh, no, not really. Well, Paul says, no, wait till she is. Now, I, I just think that in our modern world today, many people be scandalized to hear us talk like this. I, I keep glancing back. We, we are recording this, right? Yes, we are recording this. And I don't apologize for saying because it's what the Bible says. But it's just kind of shocking to compare it how people usually think. And if you think this is shocking, wait till I get further on down in the chapter. That's all I have to say. That's all I have to say. Now, I also want to say this. A church may choose to help out people who fail the family need test, who fail the um, service test, who fail the moral test. A church may certainly choose to do that. If God leads them to, then I think that they should. But what I'm saying is they are under no scriptural compulsion to. The scripture doesn't command them to do that. There's no, boy, there's no biblical command to fork out money to every drifter who comes by and asks for it. You may do so under the leading of the Holy Spirit. I mean, again, I don't want to leave that out of it at all. But if we're talking about a scriptural command to do so, well, I don't think so. Now, you, you may have heard me say this before because it's, it's something I do. You know, look, we live in Santa Barbara. There's a lot of people who come up and ask you for money. I mean, that's just how it is. We have a, we have a um, sizable and enthusiastic 
a community in our midst who doesn't mind asking for such things. And a, a, a practice that I've done, I, I won't say I do it every time, but I certainly do it with a fair amount of regularity, is when somebody comes up and asks me, you know, can you spare something? Yes. I, I might take out a dollar or five dollars, and I've got a little routine I go through with them. I say, um, I, I've got a dollar for you, but I, you need to know, uh, is it okay if I pray for you? before I give you this. Well, of course, everybody's happy for you to pray for them. Never more than when you got a little bit of money in your hand. And, and so I, I say, well, yes, I'll, I'll pray for you, but you got to know, I, I, I believe that God answers my prayers. Is it really okay if I pray for you? Yes, please, you know, pray. And this is what I pray. I say, Lord, I pray for this brother or sister. I pray for this, this man or woman. And I pray, Lord, that if they're an honest person, and if they're really just down on this luck, that you would bless this money and you would cause it to prosper and that you'd bring many more their way and provide for their every need. But I say, Lord, if this person has some dishonesty in their life and if they're going to use this money for drugs or alcohol or cigarettes or pornography or some other um, bad use, I pray that you would curse this money and it would be the last money they see in a long, long time. And, you know, they're always shocked when I pray that. But, but I've only had one person not take the money after that. <laughs> only one person not take the money. But I got to say, I feel, feel pretty good, actually, about a prayer like that. Because it's really how I feel. I mean, I do want to help. And you do, too, don't we? And we do want to be personally. Now, I'm talking on a personal level. Not necessarily on a congregational, responsible level. I think as a congregational, being responsible, it goes more from 1 Timothy. But as individuals, we want to have that open, generous heart that Jesus told us. If somebody asks of you, give. We want to have that open, generous heart. But this is what I'm always crying out for in my own heart. If I give, I want it to help them. And, and helping somebody get along in their addiction isn't really helping them. Uh, uh, supporting a destructive lifestyle, it isn't helping them. And, and do I know if I'm helping them or hurting them? I often don't. Lord, I just give me guidance, Lord. Because my real heart, and I know your real heart is too. Lord God, we want to help these people in Jesus' name. Well, going on now, verse 7. These things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Well, that's, boy, you thought Paul was strong before. Command and teach, number one, verse seven. And then verse eight. If anyone does not provide for his own. Brothers and sisters, what this is telling us is that God's normal way of providing for the needy is not through the local congregation. God's normal way of providing for people is through their own work. That, that's just the ordination of God's plan. And God says that if this is not happening, and I'll just read the words to you again. It's very strong. Verse 8, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now you and I, on one level, we get that and we say, okay, I get it. I get it. There should be and look, the, the men I know in my life, they have this. They want to provide for their family. They, they sense not only an obligation and a responsibility, they sense an honor in it. It's an honor for me to step up and provide for my family. And, and, and again, this is just something almost just written within the heart and the mind of a man. 
What, what, what Paul is telling us here is something that we just gather from human nature. We get it. It's what a man wants to do for his family. Even so much so that this idea to provide for his family, we see it in Jesus himself. Did not Jesus, in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, did he not care for the needs of his own mother on the cross? Did he not look down upon John and say, you take care of her from now on? Jesus provided for his own mother even on the cross. So in that sense, okay, we get this verse. It's easy to understand. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, we get it. But I'm going to be very straightforward. There's another level on this where I don't get this verse. And this verse is tough. And it's tough verse for guys who are just out of work. And they desperately want a job and want to provide for their own family. And I, I've met with and discipled and worked with some guys that this verse is like a terrible dark shadow of guilt over them. I want to provide for my family. I want to work a job. I can't find anything. Am I worse than an unbeliever? Now look, I think we can all agree that we know enough of the words of the Bible and the heart of God to say that God didn't give this verse to shame someone who was out of work but desperately wanted a job. That's not the idea of this verse. But you know what it does for me practically, this verse, when I'm dealing with a man like that? It increases my faith when I pray for them that God would give them work. Because I say, Lord, in the big picture... God has an individual way to work it out in each individual life. But in the big picture, this is your plan for this man. You, you want him to work. You want him to provide. You wouldn't have said this in your word unless you had this in your general plan. Lord, it gives me great faith to pray that you would fulfill this promise unto this man. But I got to say, my, my heart goes out to those who feel this great responsibility and it, yet they, they just, in, in that place where they can't find work at the moment. Verses 9 and 10, back to the idea of widows again. Do not let a, young, a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she's been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. If she's brought up children, if she's lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she's diligently followed every good work. Remember before I was talking about the service test and the moral test? Paul comes back to that in verses 9 and 10, and he hits it pretty hard. You, the, the, the support of the church isn't just to be given to anybody who might have a need. Number one, um, is she well reported for good works if she has diligently followed every good work? The widows who were accepted into the support of the church it's not just that they were true widows because they didn't have a husband, but because they also had godly character. You could say that they were called to a job and not just a handout. It is interesting there in verse 10, where Paul says that they have brought up children. Probably, I can't say certainly, but probably, and many commentators point this out, it's probably not only the idea of bringing up her own children, although that would be included, but one of the things that early Christians, from the earliest Christian times were noted for, they were famous for, is picking up abandoned infants and raising them. You know, it was a common practice in the Roman world 
to get rid of unwanted children by just leaving them someplace. So you'd have a little baby a day or two old and it would just be left. They called it exposing an infant. And you would just leave them out to die, to be eaten by animals. I hate to put it that crudely, but I mean, just awful. I mean, this terrible, and Christians were famous from the earliest days of the church for rescuing these exposed infants and bringing them up in the ways of the Lord and with the love of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That heart of Christian love and service is seen today. It's seen today in the way that Christians reach out to those who have unwanted pregnancies and, and seek to really minister to them and bless them and, and see and if, they, if they're not able in place to, to really keep that baby, then to get it a godly adoption. It's seen today in the way that Christians minister in the ministries of adoption and foster families. That spirit of Christianity is still alive and well today. And that's probably what Paul has in mind, not only the raising of her own children, but again, this wonderful and dramatic service. Now verse 11, but refuse the younger widows, for when they've begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And if they do not, let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. Now again, he's saying, in general, the younger widows, again, Paul would have used pastoral wisdom applying these to individual situations. But if you're speaking generally, a younger widow, if she's of a marriage, well, we'll let her remarry. She, she doesn't need to remain in her widowhood just because now she's a believer. If she has a desire to marry, as it mentions verse 11, then let her marry. She doesn't need to, you know, seek illicit romance. God has given an avenue by which her romantic um, um, longings can be fulfilled, and that's in a godly marriage. And then he gives a description of some of these younger widows who apparently were causing some trouble. But I tell you what, you read this in verse 13, you realize you don't have to be a widow to fit this description. Learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. Boy, that's the world today, isn't it? That's social media right there in front of you. That's like the theme verse for, for so much of what goes on today. And, and I guess the, the, the main idea here is these people who are described as people idle and gossips and busybodies, they're finding too much interest and entertainment in other people's lives. Instead of talking about other people's lives, go out and live some life on your own. And uh, that's what Paul's encouraging them to do. But again, he concludes it with the idea here, verse 16, if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. Again, back to the first idea. If there are legitimate needs, then let the church be concerned with them uh, and, and don't get focused on these things that are not legitimate needs. Otherwise, you won't have the resources to help those who truly have the legitimate needs. Now, verse 17 we get into a whole another section here. And I told you, yet I will be even more controversial. That gets verses 17 and 18. Ready for this? 
Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So here in verse 17, he says, let the elders who rule well. I think here he's talking in the broad context of those in leadership. So you have elders who rule and those who rule well, those who teach. Maybe some elders just rule. They just lead in the body of Christ. Maybe they don't teach so much. But those who do also labor in the word and doctrine, what are they especially supposed to be considered? Well, they're supposed to be counted worthy of double honor. Brothers and sisters, what does that mean? Now, if honoring widows was not to bring them before the congregation and have an applause session for them, but to financially support them, what does it mean by Paul when he says then that the elders who rule well, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine, what does it mean that they're worthy of double honor? It means that they are especially worthy of financial support. Now, I said before when we were in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that one of the benefits of teaching through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is that uh, you don't have to search for controversy. It'll find you. And here we just find another controversial point. And if you see me a little bit red in the face or a little hot under the collar, I don't often stand up uh, in front of people and say, well, look, the Bible talks about how pastors and preachers should be paid. But this is a clear passage that talks about it. Okay, first of all, do we understand that when Paul mentions honor in verse 17, he's not talking about applause, he's talking about support. That's the exact same context that it carries through from earlier in the chapter. And he uses the shocking phrase, double honor. Now, I I don't think that means that every pastor out there deserves a double raise right now. That's not the idea. But it's saying, if it was true of the truly needy widows, those who were really widows, by principle, it's doubly true for those who rule well and labor in the word. Although, let me emphasize this. If he labors in the word and doctrine, not much respect out there for the lazy pastor, the one who's cruising in the word and doctrine. Paul has in mind the guy who is laboring in the word and doctrine who takes the ministry seriously and a work that's to be done unto God's glory. Those pastors, they're to be counted worthy of double honor. And in the context, again, that simply means financial support, even as it would carry out. I would say this. Some people think that the church should not support pastors and staff. You'll read people from time to time. They'll say things like this. The paid ministry is an abomination. They'll say things like that. Well, let me tell you something. I think that there are times when it is best for the work of God's kingdom when the ministry is not paid. Absolutely. If anybody's out going to start a church, you shouldn't do it with the expectation that you're going to get a paycheck in the beginning. It's just not how it works. Pioneer works, missionary works, oftentimes. No, listen, there are times when it's definitely to the advantage to go in and say, I am not going to expect that this work of the ministry supports my needs. I'll find another source of income and I'll serve the Lord. Believe me, as somebody who's been a part of planting two churches, I know exactly what that's like. 
And there are times and places where it just might be better for God's work. If there's so many charlatans, if there's so many hucksters, where it's just better to set yourself apart as someone as Paul did at times in his ministry. Because when you take a look at the ministry of Paul, there were times in Paul's ministry where he refused to be supported by God's people. There were other times in Paul's ministry where he welcomed the support of God's people. Which determined it? I think it was entirely based on the situation. Which is better for the furtherance of the gospel? And in a particular place, at a particular time, considering all the factors there, led by the Holy Spirit, if it's better for the work of the gospel that the pastor not be paid, well, then he shouldn't be paid. But if it's better for the work of the pastor that the pastor be paid, well, then by all means he should be paid. But what's interesting is even when Paul did not receive financial support, he also expressed his right to it. He just said it was a right that he gladly left behind. Uh, commentator Newport White gave this uh, paraphrase of Paul's idea, quote, what I have been saying about the support of widows reminds me of another question of church finance, the payment of elders. Equity and scriptural principles suggest that they should be paid in proportion to their usefulness. I think that's a legitimate expression of Paul's idea here. And what's fascinating, if you take a look at verse 18, he backs it up with scripture. What does he say? For the scripture says, and he quotes two passages, one from Deuteronomy where it says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. You get the idea there, there's the ox treading the grain. And you not put a muzzle on the ox. The ox can eat from the, the field of his work. That's the idea. And Paul expresses in another place that God didn't write that because he was so concerned about oxen. No, I'm sure God does care about oxen. But more so, he cares about his ministers. And then the other thing that he quotes is fascinating. He quotes this thing. The laborer is worthy of his wages. You search all through the Old Testament, you're not going to find that. You know where that's said? That's said in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And you know what Paul says? Paul calls that scripture. Paul quotes from the Hebrew scriptures and calls it scripture. Paul quotes from the Greek scriptures, the gospel of Luke, and he calls it scripture. I love that. But don't miss the point here. The idea here is that it is appropriate for them to reap material things among those whom they do their spiritual work. Paul repeats this idea in several places. In 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 11, he says, if someone sows spiritual things, it's entirely appropriate for them to reap material things. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, Paul wrote, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. The idea there is a financial support. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul said that such giving abounds to the account of the giver, sharing in the reward of the spiritual ministry supported. In other words, when that kind of support is given, you share in the reward. You do. And that's a glorious thing. That's a wonderful thing. That pastor, that preacher, that whatever, you think God's using them? You can share in their reward through the financial support of that congregation. Now, it's also significant here what Paul says in verses 19 and 20. We leave this section where he pointed out the legitimacy of the support of pastors and preachers from 
um, the congregation, but now in verses 19 and 20, he says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I think Paul does an amazing job by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verses 19 and 20 in striking a necessary balance. The first part of the balance is you shouldn't receive just any accusation against a leader in the church. But the second aspect is, mainly in verse 20, but you need to hold church leaders accountable. And friends, it's easy for people to get off on either extreme, either extreme. Sometimes it's shocking to see how quickly bad reports about God's ministers are believed. It really is. It's a very interesting question. Here Paul says, verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Any accusation against a leader should not be automatically received. The accusation should be carefully verified by two or three witnesses. Timothy shouldn't receive or promote unsubstantiated accusations against church leaders. Now, John Calvin, in addition to his theological writings, which, by the way, if you care, I'm not a Calvinist, but he wrote some good things. In his commentary on 1 Timothy, he wrote about why some reasons people are so quick to receive an accusation against a pastor when perhaps they should not. And it's like, why does that happen? This is what Calvin wrote, quote, The more sincerely any pastor strives to further Christ's kingdom, the more he is loaded with spite. The more fierce do the attacks upon him become. And not only so, but as soon as any charge is made against ministers of the word, it is believed as surely and as firmly as if it had already been proved. This happens not only because a higher standard of integrity is required from them, but because Satan makes most people, in fact nearly everyone, over-credulous so that without investigation they eagerly condemn their pastors whose good name they ought to be defending. That's a heavy statement. I think it's pretty true. Calvin went on to point out that there is a spiritual attack in all of this. And please note this. I think this is a very insightful statement. He says this, quote, It is indeed a trick of Satan to estrange men from their ministers so as gradually to bring their teaching into contempt. In this way, not only is wrong done to innocent people whose reputation is undeservedly injured, but the authority of God's holy teaching is diminished. I believe it's true. I believe one reason why pastors and preachers and ministers are often attacked and why there's just a spiritual dynamic that those attacks are often so quickly believed is because Satan wants to undermine the integrity of the pastor, especially if he's really doing God's work. Brothers and sisters, do not be too quick to receive an accusation against a pastor, a preacher, or a minister of the gospel. On the other hand, and this is a very big on the other hand, look at what he writes in verse 20. 
those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may fear. Yes, pastors and preachers and ministers of the gospel should be accountable. And when they are in sin, it should be confronted. When they are in sin, not only should it be brought up, but it should be done in the presence of all so that others will fear. And as I said, there's this pendulum that goes back and forth. On the one side of the pendulum, there's people who are so extreme. Any bad thing that's said about a pastor, a preacher, a minister, oh, they want to believe it. No, look, they're all like that, all a bunch of hypocrites. That's the one end of the extreme. What's the other end of the extreme? Closing your eyes to true abuse and, and, and bad conduct and sin among pastors and sweeping it all under the rug because, well, he's spiritual. No, maybe he's not. Brothers and sisters, there is a righteous middle ground that doesn't go to any extreme, and Paul expresses it beautifully here. You don't believe every accusation, but when it's true, you got to hold the leadership accountable. There it is. It's just that simple. It's that simple. But oh, how difficult is it for us to follow these precepts. Verse 21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. What a strong statement. As if Paul is summoning heaven and earth to stand beside him as he speaks these words to Timothy. Of course, we know he wrote them, but I mean, you can just imagine Timothy could hear Paul saying them as he read these words for the first time. Just as if he could hear Paul's verse, voice, I should say, saying, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. You'd almost be forgiven if Timothy put down the scroll and just said, man, lighten up just a little bit, Paul. But he wouldn't lighten up because these principles are important. It's important that, that the church, as much as possible, and of course, it's possible to do it perfectly, but as much as it is possible on the part of God's people to be led in a godly, righteous, wise way and that these things should be observed, as it says in verse 20, without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Prejudice and partiality are grave sins before God. In the New Testament, the emphasis is on partiality according to class or, or economic standard. In our modern day, we know about race and gender also included. That's regarded as sin. No, we need to do these things in a godly, godly way. Now verse 22. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. What does Paul mean by lay your hands? I don't think he's talking about praying for somebody, just in the sense somebody comes forward to prayer. He probably means it in the sense of ordination. Don't recognize somebody for pastoral ministry as being officially recognized as a preacher or minister of the gospel too hastily. Let them prove themselves. And I think that's wise advice, don't you? There should not be a rush. Time must season a man and the ministry. I think that's a very important idea. Ordination simply recognizes God's calling. And it's all the more reason to not be in a hurry. Time should be given to those to allow the gifts and the callings to demonstrate themselves. It is not uncommon for a young man in the ministry to be a bit impatient. I mean, look, he's all fired up. He wants to do great things for God. And he's anxious for other pastors and elders to lay hands on them in recognition of God's work. Paul says, well, take it slow. Take it slow. 
You've got lots of life in front of you. When the time is right, God will give that, that recognition. In the meantime, look at that exhortation, verse 22. Keep yourself pure. If Timothy was called to observe and assess the lives of others, you've got to watch your own life too. Sometimes it gets that way in the ministry, doesn't it? You're looking out at everybody else's life. Pastor, look at your own life. And Paul had to give that exhortation to Timothy. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now you know that in the ancient world, water was often impure. Timothy probably had problems in his stomach from impure water. The, the fermentation process eliminates some of the harmful things in the water. So he says, look, Timothy, just as a very practical matter, drink a little wine. I, I think it's a couple things interesting about that. First of all, it shows that wine was not absolutely forbidden to Timothy. We understand that, right? Second thing it shows is it shows us that Paul did not have some um, bizarre, miraculous gift of healing at his command. Why didn't he just transmit the energy over the uh, hundreds of miles and heal them from a distance? Because Paul was definitely used in spectacular ways to heal people, but it's not like it was at his command. It's not like Paul could just go into a room and go, bam, 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 heal, heal. It didn't work like that. The legitimate gifts of God don't work like that. So Paul doesn't say, I heal you. He says, take a little wine. It'll make your stomach feel better. Another thing it shows us is that he told Timothy very expressly, take a little wine, right? Little. But then the fourth thing, and I find this fascinating. Apparently, it was not Timothy's custom to drink wine. Therefore, Paul had to command him to do it. He had to receive apostolic permission to drink wine. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. I think all of that is instructive, don't you think? Um, but notice, he says, your frequent infirmities right there in verse 23. It reminds us that Paul didn't have this miraculous power from a distance to heal Timothy, but rather he just said, hey, listen, um, take a little medicine. It'll make you feel better. Verse 24. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. I like how Paul ended this little section with those two words. Although, it sounds a little bit like, I don't know, a little fortune cookie-ish right there. But, but listen, it's spot on, especially in this section. Let me explain to you why. He's talking about the people you've got to deal with in the church. Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. Uh, how do you determine that people are really in need, that the church should support them, shouldn't support them? Well, you throw those tests on them. You, you do the family or the need test. You do the service test. You, you, you do the moral test. We got it. We, we see how to deal with elders and how accusation against elders and how you, you, you don't want to be too quick to receive accusation. But man, you got to hold the leadership accountable. There needs to be accountability. Okay, we get all that. And at the end of it all, you just kind of say, listen, sometimes you can read people and sometimes you can't. Isn't that interesting? 
Let me read you those two verses again. Some men's sins are clearly evident. Well, those are the easy ones, right? Preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. Don't we wish it was always clearly evident? Well, yeah, just look at them. Easy. Oh, look at them. Great. It doesn't always work that way. And those otherwise cannot be hidden. I think all of that would just make Timothy come back and say, Lord, first of all, I need your grace. I'm going to make some mistakes along the way. Look, uh, it's a great thing to get together and, you know, just part of the, the thing that God has me in my life, I get to talk to a lot of different pastors and preachers and those serving the Lord. And uh, one of the great conversations you can have, I, I always love to uh, just start talking about the mistakes we've made. And all we can tell you stories. We can tell you stories about the guy that we thought, listen, this guy's going to be the greatest guy ever on my team, and oh, what a disaster that was. And then we'll tell you the story about the guy, man, we, we thought that guy was going nowhere. Are you kidding me? God used him? And look at how God used that person. Isn't it amazing? And then we'll tell you the stories about the other guys. Well, I could see it in the very beginning. Man, God had his hand on that guy. Or I could see it from the very beginning. No, don't get close to that one. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's not. It means, number one, we need grace. We need grace. And your pastors, your preachers, your ministers, they need your prayers. Number two, you should be super grateful for the leadership you have. You really should. You should just thank the Lord for Pastor Tommy, the whole family here. Amen. Amen. You should be really grateful for the integrity, for the heart, for the waiting on the Lord, for the reliance on God's wisdom, for the love. You should be so grateful for all of that. But, but then, so you, you, you grant grace, mercy. You, you're very grateful. You pray. And then you say, God, Give me wisdom. Sometimes it's easy to tell. Sometimes it's not. And you know, when you take a look at the whole big picture, isn't it a miracle that anything gets done in the kingdom? When you see what God has to work with, we just stand back and say, Lord, it is. It is your glory. It's your glorious grace and power that anything gets done in your kingdom. We're so grateful for it. Father, I pray a continued blessing upon Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. Lord, you have blessed us with the wonderful, godly, wise leadership of Pastor Tommy. But Lord, we don't want to take it for granted. We pray that you would strengthen and sustain him and fill him and give him wisdom. Lord, not just wisdom according to what he can see, but we take this seriously, Lord. At the end of this chapter, you just can't always tell. So Lord, give Pastor Tommy supernatural wisdom in those situations. And Father, just give us the grace to continue to go forward and see what you're gonna do and the calling you have for us as a congregation here in this community. We're so grateful for it. Pour out your grace upon us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.